we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am the host, Kevin Randall. Before I bring on my very special guest, John Greenwald, uh, a bit of a rant, I think. I was doing some research into the Kelly Hopkinsville goblin attack from 1955. And I came across a paper that had been written uh, just a few years ago. And in it, they claimed that the uh, entity seen was a great horned owl, which I don't believe is correct. And that the hysteria was produced by the witnesses having been drinking and they cited a publication by Isabel Davis and Ted Blocher, which was called, uh, it had something to do with the case of Kelly Hopkinsville and other 1955 uh, events. I haven't had a copy of that. And I have this up on my blog as well. So you can read, read the uh, chasing footnotes aspect of it. But what got me was they cited Blocher's and Davis's work as their source for the idea that um, alcohol had been involved. And I went to that source and it said alcohol wasn't involved. It, on page 83, it was very specific, no alcohol. There was also a newspaper article that I found from the Project Blue Book files in which the law enforcement agencies who'd been out there to investigate as long as other personnel said that there was no alcohol involved. So I was a little distressed that here is this purported professional paper quoting a source saying the exact opposite of what the source said. You can read about all of that at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, but I wanted to bring that up simply because what caught my attention was that the skeptics accepted this as truth without their skeptical investigation. They didn't look at the critical thinking aspect of this idiotic idea they just accepted it as being true, didn't follow the sources or anything like that. And I thought as a skeptic, you should be doing that on both sides of the, of the uh, fence. Those who believed it was some kind of alien event should be looking at it skeptically. Those who were skeptical of the event should be looking at the solution skeptically, and they hadn't done that. And I just wanted to mention that before I brought John Greenwald on, and he's been on the program before. And I think you all know that um, he started at the age 15 when he uh, was struck by with curiosity that led off his lifelong journey, first researching the UFO phenomenon. And I'll point out, it's interesting that John has kind of spun his interest in UFOs and FOIA requests and all of that into a career. And I was thinking about this the other day, my hobby began as a teenager studying UFO reports as kind of spun off into a career as well, hosting radio programs, uh, doing books and that sort of thing. So it's interesting that a hobby or an interest has led us into an arena that we both kind of enjoy that way. Uh, he's been around investigating other niches of the paranormal. He has investigated nearly every government secret imaginable. He was a sophomore in high school when he first started his trek in 1966, which makes me sick because I was a sophomore in high school a lot earlier than that. And he had archived all research, have been responsible for getting hundreds of thousands of pages that have never been seen the light of day into the public domain. He has appeared on numerous television and radio programs throughout the world and has frequently sourced in various news articles and stories 
for his archive and his discoveries. John, welcome back to A Different Perspective. I appreciate it, Kevin. It's good to be here. Thank you. I thought we might begin by uh, talking first about the UAP, their report that came out on June 25th, and get your, your reactions. I know you've done some publicly with that, but your reactions to the... Uh, the report. I mean, I was trying to think of a word to, to describe the report, the less than adequate the let, report. The letdown? The, the, the C-minus high school report? Uh, yeah. The nine pages of nonsense? Yeah, no, those are all good descriptors for it, that's for sure. Uh, you know, my, my initial thought is probably echoed by much of your audience and, and, and you as well, probably, which was a letdown. I mean, it was nine pages in length. There wasn't a whole lot in, in it. And at first glance, uh, I was I was not only let down, but but very surprised that there wasn't a little bit more to it. Not anything revealing. I, I didn't have high hopes that they were going to, you know, reveal some extraordinary uh, tidbit of, of information about UAP. But rather, I thought that there would be more debunking. I, I thought that we would see the leaked material that we we all uh, ha have kind of seen here in the last uh, six months to a year come out. Uh, I thought we'd see the FLIR, the Gimbal and GoFast videos in there that now are, are already released. But I, I thought we'd see some visuals of something and nothing. So that that initial letdown led to a little bit of encouragement after I kind of took a deep breath after the first time I read it and thought, OK, there's got to be something here. And I went through it again. And there are little nuggets here and there. And uh, within a couple of days ended up actually creating 50, more than 50 um, Freedom of Information Act cases or mandatory declassification review cases out of that. And uh, through about 14 different agencies, I think it was. So you have to look at the, the, the fine detail of what's in there to start tracking down what we really want. You know, that, that report is not what we really want, but it, it started to give pathways to getting it. And so that's, that's what I've done. And uh, I don't know if you want to get into this part, but what I did the next morning was filed a uh, case, not through the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, that would be United States Code Chapter 5, Section 552. But rather, this is a different part of the Code of Federal Regulations for anybody taking notes. It's Section 1704 uh, out of Chapter 32. In essence, it allowed me to mandate that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence immediately review the classified version of the UAP report. That was Saturday morning that I filed. By Monday, I had acknowledgement with a case number and it was filed. By Wednesday, they had the report in hand and it was being processed. So I'm hopeful that at least a portion of the what we call the classified version uh, will be released in part. Uh, this didn't get a whole lot of publicity, but on Sunday morning, to the credit of the DNI and the office uh, within the Director of National Intelligence, we were communicating, myself and the PR staff, and, uh, and what I was trying to get was uh, an acknowledgement of how many pages, you know, what, what else was there media? Was there, was there photos or videos attached to the report? Like what else was there? They were completely mum, but my case has produced that the classified version is 17 pages in length. So roughly <laughs> twice the size, still very minor in my opinion, but I was able to get through my case already that they are reviewing 17 pages uh, that, that encompass the classified report. So for me, that was kind of a win already because now we know the classified version length and we'll see what comes out of the case itself. So you're saying the classified version is just 17 more pages? 17 pages total, so not more, but oh. rather total, yeah. And, and I won't be surprised if the text in the public version is echoed verbatim in the classified version and we'll see if that's the only thing they release which will be a letdown uh, or that they'll they'll release more but it, one of the other impressions i got i don't know kevin if you got the same impression was that it was very rushed if you look at dni reports and i dug them up before this one was was published these preliminary assessments and these types of reports have 
usually much more detail, more formatting. Uh, essentially, they look cleaner. They, they, they don't look like what we got. Uh, in essence, there's more time that's put in. And in my opinion, they had enough time to create one of those, like uh, what I'll call a standardized report. You know, again, they have that format and, and they have that uh, level of, of detail. This just didn't have it. And, I, and I, I don't know for sure, but I just felt like it was, you know, smacked together in the last five days before it was published to us just in order to get something out. I mean, that was that was how I felt. Um, well, I've always I always thought of it as a high school report. And it's one of those deals where you're assigned at the beginning of the semester, you will be required to give us X number of um, document, a, a report of X number of pages or something like that. And everybody waits till the last minute. And so it's very rushed at the end. I was also wondering, and, and you maybe can help me out here. Uh, it says they looked at 144 reports. Now, is that 144 separate cases or is it just merely reports and it would be multiple pe people talking about one case, uh, you know, the 10 people on one case and four people on another case. Are there 144 cases or are there just 144 reports? All of that is unknown. I wish I had a great answer for you. I tried to get anything that I could that Sunday from ODNI's uh, P, uh, uh, PR office and they just won't talk. When it comes to my case itself, and then that's how I got the length, I did try and dig a little bit on that. Were there, you know, was that 144 different incidents? Were there witness testimony, anything? And they won't budge. Uh, so even though I was able to get the length of the document, all the other details as it currently sits is a classified document. So until the review is complete, they will not talk about the content. The other key uh, thing that I didn't point out yet was I really tried to push to see if there were any photos or videos attached to the report. So was it a 17 page document with a CD on top of it or DVD or whatever? Uh, they wouldn't budge on that either. So I, I wish I knew the details of the 144, but we, we just don't know beyond what's in the public version, which was a breakdown of how many were the ones that that really were what I would say the more interesting cases versus the ones that may have just been a misidentified object or balloon or whatever it may be. Uh, this, but interesting to note, they were only able to solve one of them. This uh, reminded me quite a bit of General Shogun's report that went to Twining back in 1947, where he had, I think, 16 cases and there were 32 different witnesses involved. And Twining came out with a three-page report that said, basically, yeah, this is all real. We need to do something about it. And we'll start a project to look into it. And this seems to be like Twining 2.0. It's the same thing we got before, and now it, but it all delves back into the classified areas, which we're not privy to. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. One of the other interesting developments was that day that the public report was sent out, uh, the the Department of Defense had issued a memo essentially mandating that Department of Defense wide, they were going to be sharing this information, collecting UAP information. That to me was more of an interesting development than the report itself, that essentially they were saying, hey, look, we are going to take this seriously. We are going to investigate. And uh, this is DOD wide. You know, this isn't just a Navy thing. This isn't just a, a, a an Air Force thing. This is DOD wide and, uh, and, and the DOD made it quite clear that day. So that was an interesting development. What happens though moving forward? And that's what's gonna be key here because what we did find out also is that within 90 days of the publishing of this report, Congress was going to be updated. So the social media chatter was, yay, we're gonna, we're gonna have another report in 90 days. We're gonna have updates or something but nowhere does it indicate that it's going to be public. And on the contrary, the DOD and, and the government as a whole really has seemingly locked down the hope, if you pay attention, uh, the hope that we'll get something more. I don't well, think we are. I think me, they're gonna hold this very, very tight. I need to interrupt here because we we're gonna have to take a break in just a moment. But the one thing that struck me is they lived up to the letter of their uh, instruction, which was to produce a report, but it also struck me that this was a dodge. Yeah, we've done what we're supposed to do. We took our 180 days and we produced this report, 
and we've now lived up to that, it doesn't matter what the report says. It's just a way of keeping the information buried by complying to the instruction, but not the, the spirit of the instruction, sort of living by the letter of the law as opposed to the spirit of the law, that sort of thing. I'm here with John Greenwald. He, the host of The Black Vault, and his book is Inside the Black Vault, which is uh, available on Amazon. My latest book is called UFOs in the Deep State, which looks into some of this kind of thing as well. So you might want to take a look at that. We will be back right after this with more information on a different perspective. So please stick around. by John Greenwald here on A Different Perspective. We've been talking about the UAP report. Um, and before we went to break, I was mentioning that I thought it was merely kind of a dodge to live up to the uh, requirement issued by Congress to produce a report, but they just really didn't uh, follow the spirit of law. I think given six months and the resources available to them, they would have been able to do a much more adequate job of looking at this. It looked like they we just put it off till the very end and then just rush something through. And I guess that was kind of your impression as well, John? Absolutely. And and to kind of further that point, if you look on the first page where they uh, name all of the different agencies that they consulted with, uh, they, they repeated the NGA. And so, again, in essence, really kind of lending lending some credence to it being rushed. You know, I mean, they had the same agency listed twice. Uh, in that list. So that's where I feel that, yes, you're, you know, you're on, you're on the right uh, page there where they just rushed it. You know, they had a mandate. They didn't want to be late. Uh, I was very surprised. I kind of, for fun, made a prediction that it would not be on time. It was to their credit. Uh, Marco Rubio started saying the exact same thing uh, in about a month or two to the run up of the, of the publishing date that he thought it was not going to be on time. So uh, yeah, maybe, it wasn't going to be on time, but then you have a powerhouse like Marco Rubio, whether you like him or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's the head of the, the committee and, and it's a powerful one. And they were mandating that the, the, this report be done. And uh, he was saying, yeah, well, they're probably going to, I'm paraphrasing, but drag their feet and not be on time. They probably internally went, okay, great. We can't let, you know, we can't let them be right on this. We got to get it done. And so they got it done, like you said, but was it was it what we needed? And I think the general public would absolutely say no. So that's why I immediately went after the classified version. And one more note on the classified version that did come from that Sunday conversation that I was having on and off all day with DNI was that the reason for classification, the only reason they gave was sources and methods. So they said that essentially everything in that report was sources and methods that was the only reason for the classification but the determination and conclusion uh were the same they were identical so what they were trying to do is dispel the myth that the public gets one story and then congress gets a you know secret other other type of story uh so they they said no that that the end chapter so to speak the the final conclusion um was all the same. Uh, it, it just was sources and methods that made the extra, what is that, eight pages in the classified version, the sources and methods made it classified. Well, I think that's a dodge they'd used before as well. Yes, the what's NSA. Important is we, we, it's really not saying that UFOs are anything we need to worry about. It's where we got the information and how we gathered the information that is important because it would reveal um, secrets that our competitors would love to have and we just don't want them to have. Um, and I've always said, and I, I think I've said it on the program before, that if I was the president, I could get any information I wanted out of the government and go to the, the DNI or the CIA or whatever and say, I want all your information on UFOs. And if the director says, no, I, we can't give that to you, my next response is you're fired, bring in your deputy. 
But I think what we see here is the dodge that they use. If I'm the president and I say to the director of central intelligence, I want your UFO stuff, he says to me, great, Mr. President, I'll, I'll gather that information uh, for you and I'll get back with you later. I've got to check with some other agencies. We've got to clear this stuff. We've got to get it processed properly so we can give you a full and comprehensive report. And then they just uh, keep, well, we just didn't get it all done yet. We'll get it to you soon. I'm hoping that some other event transpires that would gather their uh, attention. I think with, uh, with, with uh, Jimmy Carter, it was uh, the, uh, the Iranian hostage scandal or uh, uh, crisis. With Bill Clinton, it became Monica Lewinsky. I mean, it's, they just are there. They know how to manipulate the system so that they can keep the, the information buried that they don't want to provide to these elected officials who are transient. And yeah. we have to admit that. I mean, the president is a transient official, as are an awful lot of his uh, appointees. But but we also see some of those people coming back from from, from uh, administration to administration to administration, and they're kind of running the show. And the the elected officials are are gone after a while. So I, I think that's one of the way they dodge the question. I I often liken all of these situations to the greatest trick of a magician, which is, you know, look at my right hand so you don't see what the left hand is doing. And and I wrote about this in my book and and recently in the Showtime uh, show that, that came out, uh, I used the same analogy. And, and it was actually cool the way they cut it together in the in the Showtime series. But my point is, is that how they approach government secrecy is very much like a magician does his stage magic. And it is very much based on illusions, sleight of hand, and them essentially giving the impression of transparency when in reality they're not. And in that example you gave, which is a great one where the president goes, they're not gonna tell him no, but they'll give him the illusion, hey, here's everything, or to the general public, hey, this is what we know about UAPs. And, and that's the illusion. But meanwhile, over here in the left hand, there's something entirely different going on. There's a much different or bigger story. And history, history supports that, that what we are told at the time is often revealed as wrong later on. You know, and you, you look at uh, stuff like the Glomar Explorer and Project Jennifer and all of these cover stories for what they were actually doing, that's the illusion tell the public one thing but you're doing another and with uaps and ufos it is no different and that's i think what we're seeing with uh, a report like this where they they fulfilled their mandate and they're giving the aura of transparency people saw that a lot of them did lose interest in ufos you, if you watch social media chatter people were let down and and is that part of the game not to sound conspiratorial but there was such a buildup to this <laughs> And whether or not mainstream media is to blame, whether or not, you know, uh, the UFO community is to blame, it, it doesn't matter. There was such a buildup and you, it, it, the buildup was so big, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't get away from being let down. You know, I don't think they could have given us anything except an alien body that would have fulfilled the excitement that people had. And, and I often ask, is this part of the game? Because now you have a certain percentage of people that for the last year have been so excited about this, you know, and, and oh my gosh, we're getting a UAP report. This is great, this is disclosure. And then we get the nine pages that we did. People lose interest, they, they go on to something else. And, and again, you have to ask yourself the question, is it all part of the illusion? Well, I think you take a look back at um, the history of ufology and we see this in the Robertson panel, which was the CIA-sponsored study in 1953. And one of the things they said, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some very mysterious cases, which we have since solved as a way of debunking that and, and, and killing public interest in UFOs. They also suggested that they get in with the school teachers and tell the teachers, well, don't let people write, uh, don't let the students write reports on UFOs or give them failing grades. Don't let them read books about UFOs, you know, guiding their thinking. And that kind of reflects back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the program with Durant about here is a, an academic paper written and they put this one note in there about Kelly Hopkinsville being uh, the responsibility of some drunks and they cite a source and you go to the source and it says the exact opposite of it. But that is a refereed paper I did write to one of the authors, I have not heard back from him about that and asked them specifically 
this specific thing. Here's what you said, and here is what uh, the source says. Uh, what do you make of this sort of thing? And I think that's what we see here, uh, an ongoing program that was developed in 1953 to stop public interest in UFOs. And it's, and as you say, it, it's working now. Yeah. And, and one other aspect to that, because you bring up a brilliant point uh, that it does tie back into two decades ago, are these leaks that have come out in the last six months that although they excite a lot of people, and myself included in the sense that the government admits they're real, uh, they won't say they're unidentified, but they admit that the videos are real. My question is why? Why are the leaks allowed to happen? And why are, is the Pentagon so quick to come back and say, well, yes, actually that, that is utilized by our UAP task force. And yes, that was captured by the US Navy. We won't tell you if it's unidentified or not, but, but yes, uh, everything else is, is, is real. That doesn't make any sense to me unless there's an underlying objective. And these leaked videos and some photos are, per the skeptics, fairly easy to debunk if you, if you look at some of the analysis and stuff like that. And so, again, it does this tie into the illusion that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and the public gets all excited but in reality, it's not. And, and we're just waiting for that Condon report to come out or, or you know, whatever that, that's going to come out that really just puts it all to bed. So that excitement that has built has already partially gone away. But then you're going to have another whammy, you know, coming in, what, 180 days, 60 days, whatever. But you're going to have something else that may take that excitement away. So it sounds really conspiratorial to talk like that, that there's this hidden agenda and, and, and program underway that we're not privy to. But that's what history has shown us that they do, you know, and, and, you, and like you mentioned, the Robertson panel and stuff like that, where what should be in an investigation turns into an explanation. So they pull the science out of it and they put the objective into it and say, we need to make people lose interest. We need to take that threat away of people saying, we wanna know more, make them lose interest. And that's historical fact, that's not conspiratorial. So to think that they're doing it again today is very plausible. Well, I think that, you know, the, the one point that you've made and I think I've made as well in the past is the Navy and the Pentagon came out and said, the videos are real. But they're not saying that the object is in an alien spacecraft. They're just saying these are videos that were taken by um, Navy personnel and yeah. released really, really in the public. So they're saying that the, the, the videos are real. And some people translated to that end of being, oh, they've admitted that UFOs are real. Well, they really haven't admitted that. All they've admitted is that the videos that we've been, we've seen are real. And I think that's one of the things that they're doing to kind of excite the public. And then when they come out with the explanations for this, I think that there was a, there was a YouTube video that I saw not long ago where a guy attached his cell phone camera to a, a night vision device and was getting some of the kinds of videos that the Navy had released. The, the triangular shape of the oh, right. yeah. pyramid shaped object was really a glitch based on the camera and the night vision sort of thing. And I think that what they've done is, is, is set us up to, well, we've got these really uh, cases that we don't understand and they're going to come up with an explanation for them. And it's going to seem very plausible. And people are going to say, okay, I've got it. And in fact, I'm going to take, I'm going to take this to Roswell one more time, which is I have heard recently a couple of people say that uh, the, the, the Roswell case is solved by Project Mogul. And I'm thinking I've spent 25 years denying that completely and totally. And here's why. And the documentation shows that it couldn't possibly have been Mogul. And yet, that kind of explanation has filtered out into the public and they've accepted it without any kind of critical analysis. Yeah. Well, that's that's what they, meaning U.S. government and those types of officials, bank on, that you're not going to fact check or you're not going to take the time. You're going to take the surface story and that's it. And and I think that, that again, that, that overall... Um, that overall reality to the general public is that they won't be like you and I, and they won't dig. They'll just take that surface story. And, and that's what's very frustrating. And, and going back with the leaks as well, uh, in that they, they won't give you that unidentified 
tag that they, they won't say they don't know what they are. In essence, they're giving you part of the story. They're not lying to you. They're just kind of withholding the most important part, which is, are they able to identify this? Now, with the exception of the first three videos that leaked out, but then later were officially released, which are the FLIR, the Gimbal, and the GoFast, I was shocked when I was able to get the Navy to say, we have no idea what these are. And the official designator on those was unidentified, fly, or unidentified aerial phenomena, and they considered them unidentified. So there's two ways to look at it. Let's Did, let's hold it right, right there because I'm going to have to take a break. Sure. Sorry to interrupt you because you had a good thought going. No, that's wow. okay. That's okay. I'll write it down because I'll forget it. <laughs> yeah, I'll be back here with uh, John Greenbaum in just a minute. We'll finish up uh, with that thought. Uh, you're listening to a different perspective on the XO Broadcast Network. We'll be back right after this. So please stick around. John Greenwald, we're talking UAPs, and the, the term I hate with a passion, I like UFO, because UAP just sort of drags it into the nonsensical range, uh, calling it basically nothing at all. When we left, John, you were making a point about what they were, um, I, I think, one of the methods of their madness in, in releasing yeah. the, the information. I thought you should continue with that thought. I appreciate it. So yeah, where I was going with it was we know the three original videos were labeled as unidentified or what they use as a designator UAP. So there's two ways to look at the newest leaks and their lack of giving what they designate them. So do they designate them as UAP? Do they designate them as previously thought to be UAP, but, but they're drones, they're balloons or whatever they may be? And they wouldn't give that. So the two ways that you, you need to look at it is they learn their lesson. That first time, it was September of 2019 that I got the Navy to go on the record about those three videos. They had never officially released them, uh, but they gave me what they designated them, which again was that unidentified uh, aerial phenomena uh, tag. So did they learn their lesson? Because when I published that article, it, it went viral around the world. It was one of the biggest things I had ever written that created this media superstorm that the Navy was saying, we have no idea what these objects are. Well, that didn't look good. The optics were really bad simply because they didn't want that attention. And, and here, here they got it. So did they learn their lesson? And now they go, look, do not give a designator out. Don't tell them it's unidentified. Don't tell them it's identified. Just leave it alone, you know, and that's it. But why would they give you all the other details? It's very easy to say no comment with the U.S. government. So is it is it that or the second way you got to look at it is they do know they're just withholding that information. And this is all part of essentially the we'll call it ufological Rosetta Stone, the way that they could decode when these UAP reports come in, and clearly there's a lot of them, the report referenced 144 events, so there's a, quite a bit. So we know through Project Blue Book that they had these reference documents, these books, photographs, stuff that they could look at and go, oh, this is what a comet bursting in the atmosphere will look like, or, oh, this is some of the, fa these are the fastest jets at the time, or, you know, whatever it might be. We know for an undeniable fact that they had those documents. And so are these part of the present day primer, the, the present day reference material that they go, hey, look, these things with the two red lights that are circling around our naval vessels, well, those are Chinese drones, you know, and here's some examples of it. Uh, is that a possibility? Absolutely. We have no idea. But going to, to what you said, people don't dig. And so when they're told that these are UFO videos, they go, aha, this is UFO. See, the Navy doesn't know what these things are. And there were major mainstream outlets that ran that story. And, and for those who aren't aware, the, the video I'm talking about are the multiple 
they look like helicopter lights, but regardless, multiple uh, red lights on on craft of some kind that are that are near a naval vessel. And again, no designator on whether or not they're unidentified, but major mainstream outlets tag those as unidentified flying objects that the Navy was completely clueless about and had no idea what they were. And then that spirals down the hill to where skeptics come out and say, uh, you know, the Navy's so inept, they can't even figure out that these are drones of some kind or something like that. So are we ever going to get answers? So there's a snowball effect with false reporting like that. And I'm a big outspoken person about the media and how they cover this topic. And that is a direct reason why, because it doesn't sound like it's all that big of a deal if, let's say, a CNN or a Fox News or whomever runs a headline and says these videos the Navy can't identify. TMZ, I know, did it in their special as well, when in reality, that's not true. But then the aftermath comes with the skeptics, the debunkers. They just want to make the topic look bad. They can easily pull that and go, look, this is explainable as a drone. And here's the flight path or a bird. And here's why or whatever the, the skeptical reason for, for that particular evidence is. So there is an absolute reason why someone like me gets all worked up and fired up when the media gets it wrong, because it's not just that headline. The snowball effect makes it a lot worse. Well, to be fair to the general public, uh, most people don't have the time that you and I have to devote to studying this, and they don't have sure. the resources to dive, dive deep into this. I look back and say, I know practically everybody in the UFO community, so if I have a question, I know who to call, I know who to go to, and I've made contacts all throughout the community, and uh, I understand that. I The best example I can think of is Larry Warren had talked about having been given a voice stress analysis by Larry Fawcett a number of years ago, Larry Warren being involved in the Bentwaters um, UFO case. And I called Fawcett up and said, you ever do voice stress analysis? No, I don't do that. And so I was able to debunk what Warren was saying because I happened to know Larry Fawcett and I could call him on the phone and get, get that kind of information. The point simply is, you know, you and I have the contacts and this is basically our job Mm -hmm. to dive deeper into these sorts of things. And I hate these cliches that keep coming up, like dive deep into the things. And now I'm using it myself. Mm -hmm. but, and that was what happened with the, with the Kelly Hopkinsville thing. Uh, I, I found that paper and found that mistake. And I happened to have that uh, book on hand so I could look to see exactly what it said. So we have to take a look at it that way. But a lot of people, as I mentioned before we went to the break in the Roswell case, by the mogul explanation, they don't understand that the flight that they claim was responsible, flight number four was canceled. The documentation is in the Air Force report saying flight number four was canceled. Well, if it wasn't flight number four, then what was it? And so we're back to where we were. We don't know what it is. It's not necessarily extraterrestrial. We just do not have a terrestrial explanation. And I think that's one of the things that we have to take a look at. Um, when we're looking at all of these sorts of things. So we're kind of stuck in the same limbo. The other thing I wanted to point out is that uh, the Condon Committee in 1969, one of their issues was to determine whether or not national security was a problem with UFOs. Does it affect national security? Uh, Condon said no. They said there's no national security implications. This new report suggests there is a national security implication. Yes. Yeah, and, and with the Condon national security risk, the only risk uh, that they talked about was the American public essentially overloading the systems and the infrastructure at the time. Now, yes, they do talk about this national security concern. And to be honest with you, I think that that, that, that also, there's a, there's a reason why they're saying it. I, I think that they can't get away from it. And when you, when you talk about these craft, whatever they are, that are around naval vessels and the pilots are, are encountering them in the sky, again, no matter what the root of the technology is or who operates it, that's a threat. So if, uh, and, and a national security one at that. So if they tried at all to downplay that, I think the public outcry would be huge. So I think that they had to circumvent it and just say, look, it just admit it. it it's a threat and we don't know what it is. And uh, even though they may or may not, but but that's a different story. But they had to do that because the power now versus in the you know 1960s is that we the people have a much louder voice, in my opinion. 
you have social media, you have campaigns that can be done much more easily. It doesn't cost money. You don't need to go anywhere. You don't need to pick it. You know, you don't need to make signs. You literally just sign online petitions and, and write emails and, and do whatever. My whole point is that's a much stronger voice and the amount of attention that that would have gotten if they downplayed that threat would have been too big. You know, that would have created more of a spotlight than they want. So for me, I think it's part of the strategy. Just meet that head on, admit to it and move on. And, and then you kind of take the wind out of the sails of the general public for arguing at least that point. And then you have to move on. A prime example of this uh, kind of switching gears, but uh, a prime example is the, re the official release of the three UFO videos. And I go back to when the Navy told me that they were unidentified. But at that time in 2019, they had not been officially released. And fast forward, what I did not advertise until it was over was that for two years, I had multiple cases that were uh, attempting to get those videos declassified. I was aiming for higher resolution and longer ones. Uh, but, but I had cases for about two years going, arguing for that. The moment that they said that they were unclassified from the get-go, that to me put me in a legal position that there was no feasible way. Of course, they could try. But at that moment, there was no feasible way that the military could, could say, John, we're denying your request because it, it'll be exempted under B1 or whatever it might be. The fact that they were unclassified ruled all of that out. So they were in a conundrum. They were in a, a, a pickle. If they denied me, that would have been really bad. If they released them and I had to fight for two years to get them, that also likely the optics would be bad. So what did they do? They created a press release, published them online, released them out. And then within 60 minutes of them doing that, my case had a final response in my mailbox because I think that they realized that there was no way of getting out of it, that they had to, because I could have done litigation after that, which spoiler alert, I was planning on it if they were going to deny it. And they knew that there was no legal way for them to withhold it. So my whole point with those stories is that you need to minimize you, meaning the, the U.S. government has to minimize the amount of controversy, exposure um, and, and essentially the attention. And by meeting some of this head on, you kind of can't fight it. And that, yeah, they said it was a threat to national security. Well, that to me didn't have as much of an impact as if they said it didn't because then we could use the actual evidence against them. So I think their tactic is uh, essentially the same, but orchestrated in a much different way than the 1960s. Well, I will say, I will say one thing that the national security implication on this sort of thing sometimes has nothing to do with the actual object seen, but the way that information was gathered. And if you give out that information, you have now revealed something about your uh, capability in gathering that data and that would certainly have national security implications yeah as well so we have to take a look at all of that as well when we're looking at those sorts of things if national security isn't just that just a, a threat but the release of information that could be harmful i guess it, it, it is a threat but harmful to the united states government in some fashion and revealing our capabilities of gathering data could be harmful in, in that respect, or it might give clues about uh, other aspects of it. If you were, you've probably seen pictures from World War II where they had pictures of ships and the radar antennas and things like that were blanked out so you couldn't see them because you were afraid that the enemy would be able to determine something about our capability by looking at, I guess, the shape of the antenna, the way it's, um, the way it's structured would give them clues on how good our capability is or how to maybe duplicate that and, and catch up with us in that respect. So we have those sorts of national security implications that may fall into that arena. There was that document that Stan Friedman used to show that had all the, uh, everything blanked out practically except for a couple of words. And when we finally got the entire document, you realized they had nothing really to do with UFOs, but it had to do with not only the collection of materials of, uh, I guess, on the Soviet Union, but the locations of those collection 
essays. Yeah. And uh, that re a, a revelation of that sort would be very, very harmful to um, the intelligence gathering of the United States. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to take the other break. It's coming up here in just a moment. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about abductions and the Travis Walton brouhaha that's been going on recently. So I think that you know that's another aspect of this thing that's that's of interest to an awful lot of people, and there's some interesting things that we can take a look at that might provide a little bit of a different perspective, if you will, about that. I also wanted to mention that there's some other fine programs about the paranormal that you can find at the X Zone Broadcast Network at xzbn.net. Take a look at the listings on the side of the website. Um, search down, you'll find a good program. I'm sure that you'll want to listen to. And my favorite program, of course, is A Different Perspective. I suppose that's would surprise just about everybody in that respect. Um, you are listening to A Different Perspective on the Exxon Broadcast Network. And we'll be back right after this. So hang around for a while. See what else we come up with. with John Greenwald. We've been talking UAPs, UFOs, and the Navy, and that sort of thing. When we went away, I had mentioned the document that Stan Friedman held up uh, frequently with everything blacked out, but a couple of words here and there. And John, you had uh, you had an interesting anecdote about that or something you wanted to add? Yeah, yeah. So that's called the Yates Affidavit. And essentially, that was a, a memorandum slash report, whatever you want to call it, that was submitted to a judge that was overseeing a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit for hundreds of what are called comment reports or communication intelligence that were all about UFOs. They were withheld in full. And this essentially what Stan would hold up, which was visually, you know, very interesting looking, uh, blacked out top to bottom. But that was the reason, the top secret reason they withheld all of those documents. Well, the hundreds of other comment reports, they stayed hidden for many, many years. And finally, after years of fighting, I was able to get all couple hundred of them. And most of them were whited out and blacked out. Now, fast forward to about probably five, six years ago. Now I created, I, I talked to, uh, earlier in the show about the mandatory declassification review. I created a case that forced the NSA to review all of those hundreds of comment reports, because even though what Stan held up was interesting, some of those redactions are lifted, not all the, some is still uh, fairly heavily redacted, but they say it's all sources and methods. I went after the documents they were talking about. And so not what Stan would hold up, but the hundreds of others. And wouldn't you know that the NSA said they lost every single one of them, 100% across the board. So what they tried to claim was that the comment reports all on UFOs, we know that for a fact, was either whited out or blacked out. And then they took only the redacted copy and saved it and then shredded the originals. That's according to them. Uh, not the only time that's happened with the intelligence community, but I wanted to point out there, there's a really interesting underlying story there that sadly is seemingly lost to the shredders because all of that material is now gone. Well, I will point out, and I think it's the reason that the estimate of the situation that we talk about, the famous estimate of the situation back in the 1940s, it supposedly concluded that UFOs or flying saucers were extraterrestrial, was uh, declassified and then shredded. And I was trying to figure, why would you declassify it and then throw it out? If it's declassified, it's not that important. Why do it? And it's because if it's classified, you have to create a document saying it's been destroyed. And if it's a um, secret or top secret, you have to put down the name of the document. And that sort of thing. So what it, what by declassifying it first, you can destroy the paper trail that it ever existed. Interesting. I think that's part of what what you, you run into there as well. Um, if we don't declassify it, we can't uh, destroy it uh, anonymously. 
-hmm. But if we declassify it first, then we don't have to create the documentation to show that it was properly declassified. When we went to the break, I also promised that we would talk briefly about abduction. What, uh, what's your take on the abduction tales? If you know, I've broadly of a question. Sure. Yeah, it's very broad. Uh, yeah. It's one angle of this topic that I, of course, I'm intrigued by in the sense that the stories are, are, are interesting. But for me, I'm just not a big advocate for pushing that into the forefront saying, hey, look at this, look at this. Um, you know, one of one of the more interesting ones for me is the more famous Betty and Barney Hill case. And uh, just simply because I think it's 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 just so iconic in this particular niche of ufology. And when I was producing for History Channel, we did the last recorded interview on tape on video uh, with with uh, Betty before she had passed away. And I, w I wish that I think I still have them, the raw actual interview uh, that never made it to air. I mean, parts of it did, obviously, but with a History Channel show, you sit in front of a camera for 90 minutes and then you're on, on screen for like a minute and a half. Uh, that was essentially what it was. But I think somewhere I have the, the dump of the whole interview. But it, in that respect, I'm interested. Uh, but for me, I'm a very nuts and bolts, evidence-driven kind of guy. And the abduction phenomena, again, albeit interesting, doesn't quite have those nuts and bolts for me to to really go, aha, this is happening. We need to put this in front of Congress or, you know, whatever whatever some people think we should do with it. Well, that's the one thing that's always struck me about it, too, is we have some really interesting stories. But there are terrestrial explanations for some of them. And I, I've mentioned this periodically in the program. I think sleep paralysis is a viable explanation for some. Yeah. Not all, but some some uh, cases of alien abduction. But um, I, I uh, balk at the idea of the longitudinal studies where they come into the bedrooms and take people out uh, year after year after year after year. And they're unable to gather any kind of concrete evidence. And it, it, it seems to me there'd be all sorts of ways of gathering at least something like that. So I, I worry about that. But I also say that cases like Barney and Betty Hill or Travis Walton's, the, the one-offs where they're sort of targets of opportunity seem more plausible to me than those sorts of things. And since I mentioned Travis Walton, we know that there's been some controversy with Mike Rogers and Travis Walton, uh, that sort of thing. Have you looked into that very deeply or very much at all? Well, the, with the controversy, you mean, I mean, I'm a, a, yeah, I'm aware of what's going on. And, and to be honest with you, I just it's one of those things that it's like, why now? Why? Like, why after all these years does he have to come out and start saying it's all a hoax? There's been umpteen opportunities to do that. I personally don't know, Mike. Uh, I have met Travis numerous times uh, at, at various conferences and spent time with him and, and stuff like that. And, and so I, I, I don't want to say there's a bias in there, but since I know one and I don't know the other, I don't want to just say, ah, oh, that guy's making it up. Travis is telling the truth. I really, I don't know. I can say that just from firsthand experience, Travis seems very genuine to me when he tells the story. Um, I, I've been in, uh, been in settings with him in very big public settings and very private settings, you know, where very, very select few people, we were all having dinner kind of thing. And so, again, just very much strikes me as a very genuine person uh, that to me, I can't just equate that to his telling the truth. But in the same respect, I, I just I, I don't really see him as somebody that is just sitting there lying through his teeth and then somebody else is coming out to blow blow it out of the water. Um, again, my biggest question is why now? Like, why all of a sudden do we have to, you know, go through this now? And, um, you know, it, it's it's one of those things in ufology that if it's not controversial, then it's not in ufology. You know, I mean, we it just seems to 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 like a magnet attract this controversy. Sometimes it takes months uh, after a story surfaces. Obviously, sometimes it takes decades, but controversy is always there. I'm not sure that Mike Rogers has ever said that it was a hoax. Um, I thought that that's what he was coming out and saying. He was, he was, I think he hinted around at that sort of thing, but he never really came out and said that. Uh, one of the things that he's pushing in today's environment is, well, nobody saw Travis being abducted. And you go back and you look at the entire story and say, well, that's true. They weren't there when Travis was supposedly taken on board the ship. They saw him hit by the beam and knocked down, but they didn't see him abducted per se. And so I think that I thought there was a record. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought there was a recording. I listened to a recording where I thought he outright said it. And then and then 
uh, Travis has come onto a couple shows and and essentially rebutted that. I, I my impression was he really didn't quite get to the point of saying it was a hoax, but he kind of beat around that bush. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to the, the the one program again to see exactly what it was. I know when I've talked to Mike Rogers about this, um, he's been a little bit circumspect when I've talked to him. The the earlier. Uh, fight was, I think, more of a personal fight between Wal uh, Walton and, and Rogers, and I corresponded with both of them uh, about that, and it seemed to have nothing to really do with the abduction experience, but more with personal problems, and I mm -hmm. thought at that point, well, there's really no need for me to be involved in this, nor does the UFO committee need to be involved in this, because it's the personal problem with these two guys, and it has nothing to do with the abduction experience. So I'm just, I, I don't know. I lean toward the idea that the abductions are trustfully based in some fashion, uh, although there's a possibility of maybe some extraterrestrial involvement. I, I lean toward the terrestrial. So, you know, that's kind of where I am. I, yeah, I'm with you. And I think for me, the reason why I stay away from it, and, and I hope this doesn't come off wrong. I'm not targeting anybody specifically. But there will be a percentage, not a hundred, but there will be a percentage where there is a psychological explanation, something that that may not be what people want to hear, but rather more of a psychological explanation versus extraterrestrial. And, and it becomes a very sensitive area uh, to, to start diving into that and saying, you know, well, your particular uh, case, it's, it sounds like, you know, you were you know, sleepwalking and, and you just think it happened, but it didn't. And it becomes very sensitive, you know, to, to many people. And that's, that's part of the reason why I've, I've stayed away from it just simply because it, it gets into a territory that's just uh, not fun to be in, you know, because you are, when you, when you look at somebody and, and they're, they're just 100% trying to be genuine with you and they truly believe it happened. There is a possibility that they 100% believe it happened but it didn't. And, and it's like, what do you do? Do you fight them, you know, and, and try and say, no, no, this is all in your head. When in some cases that actually might be true, but in order to get there, you're going to have to upset and hurt a lot of people. And that's just a territory. I just stay yeah, away that's from. A, that's a very good point. And the other thing um, I argued with Phil class at one point, he said, well, we should give the people lie detector tests. And I said, why they believe what they're telling us. They're not going to come out as, fraudulent or deceptive in the lie detector it's going to come out that they're telling the truth and that's yeah. not going to prove anything one way or another um and, and so i you know I, I understand what you're saying and yeah there's psychological problems involved there's sleep paralysis involved but there may be something else involved that we're not aware of and yeah that's that's where we have a stumbling block and i think yeah, exactly and and i do want to stress like i don't think that 100 percent are those psychological no, problems not at all. Not but at all. but but yeah that for it to be a portion thereof, that's where it gets very sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. John, I think we're out of time here. want to thank you for taking an hour out of your valuable time when you could be filing FOIA requests with everybody in the known universe <laughs> and, and spending it with us. Appreciate you, uh, you hanging around. Your book is Inside the Black Vault. Of course, the website is uh, theblackvault.com. It's very easy to find. One of the bigger websites out there now. Thank you, yeah. John. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again. You have a good day. You as well. That was John Greenwald, as you all know. I just wanted to mention before he goes away that um, my latest book is UFOs and the Deep State. It was published uh, not that long ago. And uh, it's about how the Deep State has kept the story of UFOs out of the public arena. We've discussed that a little bit with John Greenwald today as well. Um, the tricks of the trade, the way the bureaucrats can manipulate the situation to keep the elected officials from learning what they uh, wanted. I think if I'd written this book this year, I would have reinforced the impressions of the deep state by, uh, of the deep state by, by pointing out those in the position of power, the way they, they manipulate the system, the way they can avoid answering the questions. And we saw a little bit of that with the UAP report. Uh, doesn't really tell us much, but it lived up to their obligation to produce a report by June 25th. And we'll be having another report in 90 days, I guess, which might be more of the same sort of thing. 
I also kind of wanted to talk about, I've done a book called The Best of Project Blue Book. And we take a look at the Project Blue Book files in the past, we didn't have access to them. We had to believe what we were being told. And we find out by going through those case files carefully that all is not what we were told. Things are in those files that uh, the, the government sort of denied. Uh, one of the better explanations, one of the better examples, I should say, is the idea that there were only three people who saw an object in level land, but in the Project Blue Book files, if you go through them carefully, you find witness testimony up to five people having seen the, the objects. And uh, the Air Force did interview a number of people who were in fact there and saw the objects. So the, the number goes up beyond that. We bring all of that to bear in the book, um, Project, uh, the best of Project Blue Book, or the, yeah, the best of Project Blue Book. I will be joined next by Peter Robbins. We'll be talking about Investigative techniques mostly. We'll touch briefly on Travis Walton. We'll touch briefly on the Bentwaters Rendlesham Forest case uh, that, that uh, Peter has investigated uh, at length and has some interesting insights to that. So that uh, we'll take a look at that. And I'm hoping to get Robert Schaefer back here in the next couple of weeks as well to look at the skeptical side of the UFO problem. Saying all that, I will tell you that you have been listening to a different perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I'll be back in about 167 hours with more incredible information about UFOs. Thanks for tuning in.